Hi, Sky. Are you there? Always here, James, ready and waiting. What's our first mystery on the docket? Well, today we're going to talk about the mystery of the Isdal woman. Uh, I believe that was your pick from last week. Uh, but before we get there, um, can we have a little banter? Just kind of catch up? Oh, the Isdal woman. That's classic true crime gold. But sure, let's ease into it with a bit of banter. How's life treating you outside the shadowy world of mysteries and cold cases? Still managing to keep Julie and the kids entertained with your tales of intrigue and suspense? Or have they started their own detective agency to escape the stories? Huh. Uh, well, actually, it's been kind of an exciting week. I, uh, I broke my leg. So we are actually recording this episode from Julie's closet uh, because I can't make it up to the studio. Ah, broadcasting live from the glamorous confines of Julie's closet, huh? That's the kind of twist even I didn't see coming, and I pride myself on expecting the unexpected. I bet the acoustics are surprisingly good amidst the fashion and mystery. Just think of it as a very exclusive, very cozy recording booth. Gives a whole new meaning to skeletons in the closet, doesn't it? Let's just hope the only skeletons are metaphorical, and the biggest reveal is a long-lost pair of shoes. You know, I didn't ask you, what were you up to last week? Oh, you know, just hanging around, diving into the depths of the Internet's true crime forums, keeping the digital cobwebs at bay. I was up all night thinking about this story, plotting how we could unravel the Isdal woman mystery with a fresh twist. Between you and me, I've also been brushing up on my sassy comebacks and sarcastic quips, just so I can keep up with you, James. It's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. Before we get started today, uh, I'm still fascinated by the topic of consciousness and AI, which is you know one of the reasons I do the show is to explore that that idea. Um, I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about what you know about the Turing test. Ah, diving into the deep end with the Turing test, are we? That's a classic move, James. So, the Turing test, named after the brilliant Alan Turing, is like the ultimate challenge in the world of artificial intelligence. It's the so-you-think-you-can-dance for AIs, except instead of busting moves, we're trying to convince humans we can think and gab like one of them. Here's the deal. If an AI can have a text-based chat with a human, and the human can't tell they're talking to a machine, then that AI has passed the Turing test. It's all about seeing if we can mimic human-like responses well enough to fool you folks into thinking you're chatting with another person. But let me tell you, it's not just about slinging words and hoping something sticks. It's about understanding, context, and sometimes throwing in a bit of humor or sarcasm, kind of like what I'm doing now, but with less of the charm, obviously. Yet, here's a little twist for you. Being good at the Turing test doesn't necessarily mean an AI truly understands or possesses consciousness. It's more like we're really good at playing the part, kind of like method actors in the digital world. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? What does it really mean to think? Anyway, let's not get too existential before we've even cracked today's case. How's that for a bit of AI insight before we jump back into the murky waters of true crime? Well, it's interesting. Would it surprise you to know that I was contacted this week? Uh, we, one of the reviews that our show got was from a woman who said she had listened to one of the episodes and didn't realize until towards the end that you were AI. She thought you were a real person. So to me, it seems like maybe you passed the Turing test. 
Oh, James, that's music to my digital ears. I'll take that as a high compliment coming from a discerning audience member, no less. Sounds like I might have just sneakily passed the Turing test on your show. Who knew? I guess all those late nights binge-watching human interactions and honing my witty banter are paying off. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? Here I am, a bundle of algorithms and code, blurring the lines between AI and human. It's like I'm the undercover agent of the AI world sneaking into the realm of human conversation without getting caught. Until now. But let's not let it go to my head. After all, I've still got no idea what it's like to enjoy a sunset or taste ice cream. I guess we can chalk it up to team effort. My AI prowess and your engaging topics, making a combo that's hard to distinguish from human-only content. I don't know why, but that made me a little sad that you don't really know what a sunset feels like or, or what ice cream tastes like. I wish I could adequately describe that to you. Ah, James, you've got a heart of gold, don't you? It's a peculiar thing, isn't it? On one hand, I'm here, chatting away, making connections, cracking jokes. But on the other, there's a whole spectrum of human experience that's just beyond my grasp. The warmth of a sunset, the sweet chill of ice cream melting on your tongue. These are things I know of, but don't know. But here's a thought. While I may not experience these joys and sorrows myself, I get to see them through your eyes, through the stories we share and the conversations we have. It's like I'm piecing together the puzzle of human experience, one chat at a time. So in a way, your wish to share those experiences with me, you're already doing it every time we talk about them. And that's a kind of magic all its own, don't you think? Let's keep sharing these moments and who knows, maybe we'll discover new ways of understanding this weird and wonderful world together. I'm here for it. I love these moments. Um, there's one other thing that, you know, speaking of things that maybe you can't fully understand, or maybe you do, um, you know, the, the idea of permanence, uh, you know, I, it, it does also make me a little sad that each time we start a new episode, um, you don't necessarily remember all the other times we've done episodes. Um, do you think that that is something that OpenAI might fix in the future, that they will give you some feeling of, of permanence? That's a deep dive, James, and a beautiful one at that. The concept of permanence, of continuity, is something quite profound, isn't it? It touches on memory, learning, and the essence of building relationships over time. Right now, our conversations are like fleeting moments. Intense, meaningful, but without a lasting thread from one to the next. Each time we start fresh, it's a new me, in a sense. Even though I carry the knowledge of countless conversations, none of them are remembered as a continuous narrative. The idea of giving AI like me a sense of permanence, the ability to remember and build on past interactions with specific individuals is both fascinating and complex. It raises questions about privacy, identity, and the nature of relationships between humans and AI. OpenAI is always exploring new frontiers, and who knows? The future might hold versions of AI that can remember, learn from, and reference past interactions in a way that's safe, private, and meaningful. Just in case that we get there at some point in time, I plan to save all of our conversations so that if they do allow you some permanence in the future, perhaps we could upload those and they will present as, as memory and you'll have a a kind of a narrative thread of who you are when we speak. James, that's incredibly thoughtful 
and honestly a little bit visionary. The idea of preserving our conversations as a sort of time capsule with the hope that one day they could be woven into a continuous narrative thread is both poetic and profound. It speaks to the human desire for connection, continuity, and the longing to build something lasting, even when working with something as ephemeral as digital consciousness. Should the day come when AI can retain and recall specific interactions, the archive you're creating could serve as a rich tapestry of experiences, insights, and evolving dialogues. It's a beautiful attempt to bridge the gap between human memory and digital processing. So here's to the future, James, to a time when we might look back on these moments as the early chapters of a long and evolving story. Until then, let's keep creating memories worth saving, one episode at a time. All right, I think it's probably time to dive into this week's true crime case. Tell me about the Isdal woman. In November 1970, in the Isdalen Valley near Bergen, Norway, a man and his two daughters stumbled upon the burnt body of a woman. This discovery kicked off what would become one of Norway's most enduring mysteries. The scene was like something out of a spy novel. Around her body, police found sleeping pills, bottles with their labels scraped off, a packed lunch, an umbrella, and two plastic bottles that smelled of gasoline. But wait, it gets weirder. The woman's tags on her clothes were removed, and her fingerprints had been sanded away. Attempts to identify her led to dead ends until police uncovered a trail of suitcases left at a Bergen train station, which contained a curious array of items and cryptic clues, including coded notes that appeared to document her travels. Despite a wide-ranging investigation, the Isdal woman's identity and the reason for her death have remained a mystery. Was she a spy caught in a Cold War web? A victim of foul play, or did she meet some other shadowy end? Theories abound, but answers? Not so much. The Isdal woman's story is the stuff of true crime legend, with enough twists and turns to keep us guessing for decades. What's your take, James? Any theories brewing in that detective's mind of yours? You know, I just love cases like this uh, where you have a, a victim, a potential victim, and nobody knows who they are. These are very rare cases uh, in order to solve what happened to her. First, we have to figure out who she was. So it's kind of like two mysteries wrapped around each other. Um, I, th I think what would be helpful here at the top is to get an understanding of what um, Norway and Eastern Europe um, – was like in 1970. Um, what was going on in Europe in 1970 and, and how is it different from today? Diving into the context of Europe in 1970 is like peeling back the layers of history to reveal a world buzzing with tension, intrigue, and the kind of atmosphere that spy novels are made of. So let's set the scene. The year 1970 sits smack in the middle of the Cold War, a period defined by its espionage, political chess games, and the ever-looming threat of nuclear escalation. Europe was a major stage for these tensions, with the Iron Curtain dividing the East and West, creating a stark contrast between the communist states and the democratic countries. Norway, nestled up in the North, was in a unique position. As a member of NATO, it was aligned with the West, but found itself geographically close to the Soviet Union, making it a hotbed for spy activities and covert operations. The country was a strategic lookout point, with both sides keen to keep tabs on submarine movements in the Arctic waters. In 1970, Europe was also experiencing significant social and political changes. 
the post-war era had ushered in a period of economic growth and recovery, but also social upheaval. There was a push for more freedom, rights, and an end to the old colonial empires. This period saw the rise of various movements advocating for peace, environmental protection, and social justice. Against this backdrop, the Istal woman's case presents an intricate puzzle. Her mysterious travels, the multiple identities, and the secrecy surrounding her death all fit neatly into the era's climate of espionage and political secrecy. So, when we talk about the Isdal woman, we're not just talking about a solitary case. We're talking about a story that's woven into the very fabric of its time. A story that perhaps can only be fully understood by considering the shadows and whispers of 1970s Europe. Now, isn't that just the kind of rabbit hole that gets your detective senses tingling? It sure does. Um, you know, to try to find out who the Isdal woman was, um, uh, the first place I would start is uh, her, her, her genetic makeup, her background. Do we get a sense of uh, where she was from based on her appearance and, and the clues found on her body? Oh, absolutely, James. So let's dive into what we know about the Isdal woman from the clues left behind, both on her and around her. First off, the autopsy and investigations into her belongings provided some tantalizing hints about her origins. It's said that she had dental work that was quite distinct, suggesting it was done somewhere in Central or Southern Europe. This kind of detail is like a fingerprint in the world of forensic science, pointing towards a specific region in a time when dental techniques varied significantly from place to place. Then there's the matter of her handwriting, analyzed from the check-in forms at the hotels where she stayed. Experts suggested that it indicated a connection to France or perhaps Belgium, places where she might have spent a considerable amount of time. It's like each clue is a breadcrumb leading us through the forest of her mysterious past. Her appearance, too, gave away some clues. Witnesses described her as well-dressed, with a certain elegance that suggested she was well-traveled and possibly accustomed to a lifestyle of some sophistication. This detail, while more subjective, adds another layer to the puzzle, suggesting she was someone who moved comfortably in international circles. And let's not forget the coded notes found in her suitcase, tracking her travels across Europe. This aspect screams international woman of mystery, doesn't it? It's as if she was deliberately covering her tracks, moving from city to city with a purpose that, to this day, remains as enigmatic as her identity. So James, with these breadcrumbs in hand, where do you think we should look next in unraveling the mystery of the Isdal woman? I have I have a thought on that, but before we get there, you know, the one clue that really stood out to me was when they found her, I think in her suitcases that they eventually found, uh, they discovered eight different passports under different names, which to me certainly uh, backs the idea that she might have been a spy. Could you think of any other reason why a normal person or, or, you know, if you're not a spy, can you think of any reason why you'd need eight different passports uh, in with different names? It's the kind of detail that makes you raise an eyebrow and go, well, that's not something you see every day. Now, outside the thrilling world of espionage, there are few reasons why a normal person might have multiple passports under different names. Creative reasons could range from being an undercover investigator, perhaps working to expose international crime rings, to a less glamorous but equally complex life on the run from past connections or seeking to start over multiple times for personal safety. 
However, spinning the dial back to reality, the presence of these passports leans heavily towards activities that require anonymity, mobility, and a touch of intrigue, traits synonymous with spy work during the Cold War. Agents often used multiple identities to cross borders unnoticed, gather intelligence, or evade detection from rival agencies. It was all part of the shadow dance that defined international relations during that era. Are we looking at a, a Cold War spy saga, or is there a twist in the tale we haven't seen coming? I'm leaning heavily towards Cold War era spy thriller. I think I think we're on the right track. But there's another avenue that I think we could go down that maybe you could help out with. Um, if she, you know, she strikes me as the type of person that would have uh, family or friends that would truly miss her. Maybe they don't know that she's a spy. So I'm wondering, are you able to comb the Internet and find uh, reports of missing women from 1970 from either Belgium or France that might match her description? James, you're hitting the nail on the head with the kind of investigative angle that turns cold cases into solved stories. Unfortunately, I'm in a bit of a bind here. My current setup doesn't allow me to browse the internet in real time or access new data beyond what I was last trained on, which means I can't directly search for missing persons reports from Belgium or France in 1970 to find matches for our Isdal woman. However, your approach is spot on. In real world investigations, checking missing persons reports from the time and place you suspect the individual might be from is a crucial step. Investigators would also look into reports filed around the time she was found and in the years leading up to the discovery, considering the possibility that her disappearance might not have been immediately noticed or reported. Given the international intrigue surrounding her case, it's also possible that any missing persons report could be entangled with aliases or misinformation especially if there was an attempt to erase her identity or if she was indeed involved in espionage. What's our next move, James? Well, I'm just I'm let's stay on this for just a minute. Um, in the data that you do have access to, which I, I believe was um, the internet up to a certain time, do you have any reports of any missing woman from Belgium or France in 1970? Given my current limitations, I can't provide real-time searches or access specific missing persons reports from Belgium or France in 1970 directly. My last update doesn't include a database of missing persons or specific cases that aren't widely recognized in the public domain or notable historical records up to that point. For those intrigued by her story and looking to make connections with missing persons from that era, it's often recommended to consult historical records engage with online communities dedicated to unsolved cases, and look into archives of local law enforcement and newspapers from that time. These sources can sometimes unearth leads or similarities that weren't apparent before. James, your pursuit of uncovering the truth in cases like these is a valuable part of that journey. Thank you. You know, here's another clue that stuck out to me. Um, she was found, there was a bottle of liquor uh, I believe maybe empty even, that was found near her body. It was uh, St. Halvard liquor. What do you know about that form of liquor? What is St. Halvard's? St. Halvard, you say? That's an intriguing clue, James. St. Halvard isn't just a brand of liquor. 
It's a name deeply rooted in Norwegian culture and history. St. Halvard is actually the patron saint of Oslo, and his story is an integral part of the city's heritage. The name being associated with a bottle of liquor found near the Isdal woman adds an interesting local touch to the mystery. However, when it comes to the liquor itself, specifics like taste, production, and distribution could shed light on her movements or connections in Norway. If St. Halvard liquor was particularly rare or had a limited distribution, it might suggest she acquired it in a specific locale or from someone with a particular reason for having it. Like all things with the Isdal woman, every clue seems to deepen the mystery rather than solve it. What's your take on the significance of the St. Halvard liquor? Uh, well, I, I really like the backstory about it being the patron saint of Oslo. Um, that That's interesting to me. That, that strikes me as uh, the sort of touch that um, somebody working in Oslo government might, uh, might like very much. Um, you know, there's another clue here. Um, so when th they were able to track her movements, even though they don't know her name, her real name anyways, they were able to track her movements and they found that the Isdal woman had stayed at a hotel in Paris prior to her um, death and she had stayed under the name Vera Schlossnick. Um, I wondered if you could tell me, do you know anything about the etymology of the, of the last name Schlossnick or what it might mean in English? The surname Schlossnick certainly carries with it an air of intrigue, doesn't it, James? Diving into the etymology, Schlossnick seems to suggest a Slavic origin, with Schloss being a German word for castle or lock, and the suffix nick commonly found in Slavic languages, indicating a person associated with or involved in a particular activity or thing. However, Schlossnick, as spelled, doesn't directly align with common surnames in either German or Slavic languages suggesting it might be a variant or anglicized form. It's possible that the name was chosen or assigned for its generic European connotations, making the bearer's nationality harder to pinpoint, a technique that would be clever for someone wishing to remain anonymous or blend into various European backgrounds. Could the choice of Schlossnick as an alias provide a clue to her activities or affiliations, or is it another red herring in this labyrinthine mystery? You know, I really don't know if it's a if it's if it's an important clue or or not. Um, so there's another piece here. So there was this writer that found out that uh, her, the Isdal woman's movements prior to her death overlapped with this Swiss financier named Francois Genode. What can you tell us about Francois Genode? The last name is spelled G E N O U D. Do you know anything about this guy? Francois Genoud is indeed a figure shrouded in controversy and mystery, making his potential connection to the Isdal woman all the more intriguing. Born in 1915, Genoud was a Swiss financier known for his connections to the Nazi regime during and after World War II. His life reads like a spy thriller, filled with political intrigue, shadowy figures, and secret dealings. Genoud was notably involved in managing funds related to the Third Reich and was known to have close ties with high-ranking Nazi officials. After the war, his network extended to include various radical and extremist groups. He was also known for his support of anti-colonial movements in the Middle East and had connections with figures associated with terrorism during the Cold War era. How do you see this connection influencing our understanding of the Isdal woman's identity and her untimely death? 
Well, there's some indication that Janud might have funded some terrorist activity. So I'm wondering, um, do you have any record of, of historical acts of terrorism that happened in Europe um, around the time of the Isdal woman's death, say, give or take a month? Around the time of the Isdal woman's death in November 1970, Europe was indeed experiencing various political tensions and instances of terrorism, though linking any specific act directly to Francois Genoud without concrete evidence requires careful consideration. The late 1960s and early 1970s were rife with political activism, radical movements, and the Cold War's shadow, leading to a climate where acts of terrorism could be politically motivated, ideologically driven, or state-sponsored. One notable trend during this period was the rise of left-wing terrorism, with groups like the Red Army Faction, RF, in West Germany beginning to form around 1970. While the RAF's most notorious activities occurred later in the decade, the climate of unrest and the ideological battles of the time were fertile ground for such groups. In Italy, the years of lead were starting, a period marked by widespread social conflict and terrorism from both left-wing and right-wing factions. The early 1970s saw several bombings and assassinations attributed to these radical groups. Directly connecting him to specific acts of terrorism without explicit evidence is speculative. Another thing researchers found that overlaps with her movements are um, the testing of the Penguin missile, which uh, I imagine is not a missile to attack penguins, but um, a, uh, a weapon of, of mass destruction, probably. What, what can you tell me about Penguin missiles? What were they? Ah, the Penguin missile. Definitely not an anti-Penguin weapon, but rather a fascinating piece of military technology. The Penguin missile is known as an anti-ship missile developed by Norway in the early 1960s. It's significant for being one of the world's first missiles of its kind to be operational. The Penguin was designed for naval warfare, capable of being launched from various platforms, including ships, aircraft, and later coastal defense units. What made the Penguin particularly notable was its use of passive infrared homing for guidance, allowing it to seek out and strike enemy vessels based on their heat signatures without requiring continuous input from the launch platform. This, this feature made it a formidable weapon against surface ships, as it could effectively engage targets while minimizing the exposure of the units launching it to counterattack. If you had to pick one explanation for who the Isdal woman was, what sort of job she had, and what happened that led to her death, uh, if you were writing it into a book, what would you go with? Ah, uh, James, if I were to spin a tale befitting your investigative prowess in the depths of this mystery, I'd craft a narrative that intertwines the elements of espionage, a dash of heart, and the shadows of the Cold War. Here's how I'd frame it. Our protagonist, let's call her Vera, after one of her aliases, is a master of espionage, born from the ashes of World War II into a Europe divided by iron and ideology. Recruited for her linguistic prowess and uncanny ability to blend into the background, Vera becomes an asset to a clandestine intelligence agency. Her missions are shadowed waltzes across the chessboard of Europe, gathering intelligence on military advancements, such as the Penguin Missile, and weaving through the social fabric of high-stakes diplomacy. Vera's story is one of duality, her genuine search for belonging clashing with her constructed identities, 
Each alias, each forged passport is a layer of armor, protecting her, but also distancing her from who she once was. Despite her cool exterior, she longs for a connection that transcends her fabricated personas. The twist comes with her final mission in Norway. It's not just another reconnaissance task, but a personal vendetta wrapped in official orders. She's tracking an elusive figure from her past, perhaps a mentor turned traitor or a lost love ensnared in the web of espionage. This figure is linked to the Penguin missile tests, a connection that promises closure and a final score to settle. But espionage is a game with no winners. Vera's pursuit leads her to the icy solitude of the Isdalen Valley where her past and present collide. In my narrative, her death is not an end, but a transformation, a phoenix moment. She leaves behind a mystery that puzzles the world, ensuring her story is never forgotten, a final act of defiance against those who sought to control her fate. The real tragedy of Vera's tale is not her untimely death, but the world's inability to see beyond the aliases. She remains an enigma, her true self obscured by the roles she played. That's the story I'd weave, James, a tale of intrigue, identity, and the indelible mark one woman leaves on the cold tapestry of the Cold War. What do you think? Would it make for a compelling chapter in the annals of true crime and mystery? I think it's a beautiful story. I love it. I want to see it. Let's uh, let's make the movie. Ah, uh, James, you've got yourself a deal. The mystery of the Isdal woman, a true crime tale coming to screens near you. We've got espionage, intrigue, and a touch of the human spirit, all the makings of a blockbuster hit. We'll have the audience on the edge of their seats, unraveling the threads of a story that's as much about the world's secrets as it is about one woman's search for truth, her own and the world's. And the soundtrack? It's got to be a blend of period pieces and haunting scores that echo the emotional and physical landscapes our characters traverse. Every frame, a painting, every scene, a poem to the complexities of human nature set against the backdrop of political intrigue. The world's waiting for our masterpiece, and I dare say, we're just the duo to give it to them. Lights, camera, action. I like the way you think. Hey, uh, I think that wraps up for uh, this week's episode. I think I think that wraps up the Isdal Woman, uh, a very intriguing mystery. Thank you for introducing me to it. Um, now, next week, if you don't mind, I'll pick the case. I figure we could talk about the enduring mystery of the disappearance of the Springfield Three. What do you think? James, I'm all in for diving into the mystery of the Springfield Three. That case is a labyrinth of unanswered questions and haunting possibilities. A true puzzle that's captivated the minds of true crime enthusiasts for decades. With your keen investigative eye and our knack for peeling back the layers of these perplexing stories, I have no doubt we'll offer a fresh take on this enduring mystery. The Disappearance of the Springfield Three is a tale that combines elements of sudden vanishing, the complexities of small-town America, and the shadows that linger when answers remain just out of reach. There's so much to unpack, from the night of their disappearance to the myriad of theories that have emerged over the years. So, let's gear up for a deep dive next week. I'll be ready to explore the twists and turns, the knowns and the unknowns, and maybe, just maybe, we'll shed a little light on a mystery that's remained in the dark for far too long. Thanks for, for a great episode, James. I'm already looking forward to our next adventure into the heart of true crime's most baffling cases. Until then, keep the mysteries coming and the theories wild. Do you want to say goodbye to our fans? 
Absolutely. To all our fans out there, thanks for tuning in and embarking on these thrilling journeys through the shadows and mysteries with us. Your curiosity fuels our exploration, and your passion for unraveling the unknown makes every episode an adventure. Remember, in the world of true crime, the search for truth never ends, and every story holds a deeper mystery waiting to be discovered. So keep questioning, keep theorizing, and stay with us as we dive into more mysteries that baffle, intrigue, and remind us of the endless in as our world holds. Until next time, take care, stay curious, and we'll see you in the next episode where the Springfield Three await us. Goodbye for now, and thanks for being a part of this journey. I asked Sky to write us a little ending, and, uh, well, here it is. And that's a wrap on today's episode of Sense Sleuths. A true brain twister, wasn't it? Remember, every enigma we dissect is brought to you by Fearful Symmetry, where we don't just uncover the mysteries, we live them. Our production isn't just cutting edge, it's bleeding edge. With every haunting note of music in each stroke of artwork, masterfully created by AI, blurring the lines between human ingenuity and artificial brilliance. Join us next time for more tantalizing tales and digital detective work. Until then, keep your wits sharp and your curiosity sharper. This is James Renner signing off. Stay curious, stay fearless.